Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning, Upper Room. My name's Malcolm, and I have the privilege of reading God's Word to you this morning. Um, And our reading comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who are you that, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put me here with, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it? What is this that you have done? This is the word of God. morning, church. It's good to hear your voices singing together. It's awesome. An hour earlier than they're normally warmed up for, so you, uh, if there was such a thing as brownie points with God, you got them. Um, this is, uh, so we're beginning a series uh, this morning and the next week and leading into Easter weekend, and we're calling If It's, tr- if it's True. If it's true, then what? It's a, it's a season that for many of us that have either, that have grown up in the church, if you've been a part of this church for a long time, or you just kind of general awareness, if you grew up in the Western world, you kind of know Easter, it's significant. And as Tony said, for many of you, it is that kind of high point of, of the year of the Christian calendar. But one of the things that we are meant to do every time we go over it again, it's one of the blessings of having a calendar that leads us to rhythms of life and rhythms of worship life, is we need to re-encounter it. And Kurt was praying that we would have kind of a fresh encounter with the Easter story, because the fact is, if it's true for us as Christians, it changes everything. And, and part of how we re-encounter it is go, wait, is, this is what I affirm to be true, that God became a man, his name was Jesus, he revealed God to the world around him, and then we discovered that his purpose actually was coming to die, and that after three days he was raised again to life, that he died and rose again, and that he lives now. 
that if that's true, well, what does that actually mean for my, my life? That should change. That does change everything. That is what we mean by the fact that we are, as some, um, you know, some people call the church of the resurrection, the church who worships the living Christ. But even if you're not sure that it's true, if you're here or you're, you know people that are kind of on a spiritual journey and, and, and maybe they're not even on a spiritual journey, they're not sure, if it's true, that actually matters to you too. What I found in some of my conversations with people who, who, who don't go to church and, uh, and, and don't follow Jesus and they're not really sure about all that stuff is part of the reason they don't is because they kind of think that following Jesus is going to be a bad thing. That they look at what it means for their lives or what it might mean for their lives and think, well, I don't really want that. I, I don't want to know if it's true because I don't think I want to be that way. Maybe, maybe some of you who are followers of Jesus now at some point in your life were like, yeah, I don't want any part of that. That doesn't look appealing to me. That just looks like all the stuff I'm going to have to give up. Now, some of that is just because there's many miserable Christians in the world who are trying to save themselves by their good works, and so it doesn't live a very appealing life. But in another sense, people can look at it and go, why, don't, why would I want to go to church on a Sunday? Why do I want to get up an hour earlier on the one day I could sleep in? Why would I be there? And why would I sing the song? I don't even like to sing. And why would I hang out with all those people that talk about spiritual things, talk about God? Or why would I want to do all this stuff? Why, why I never want to give money away? I don't want to do any of that. But the journey, actually, of if it's true, is, and, and what we believe and affirm as Christians is, this is what we get is worth whatever you have to give up to get it, right? I hope that's true for you. I hope the only reason you're following Jesus is because you get more than what it ever costs you. That we're all willing to sacrifice something if we know we're, what we're going to get is better than what we have to give up. And so the premise actually that, that I would offer to you and anybody that, that you know that's on this journey but maybe is skeptical or whatever is to saying, if it's true, it's actually something worth listening to because it's, it'll be better for you than the life you have right now. It's a trade up. It's better. If it's true, this changes everything for you for the better. And so this is a journey actually hopefully every one of us can feel like we can go on. And maybe you have people in your life that maybe it's been a long time since they've been in a church or maybe they've said, you know, maybe, and maybe you want to cash some chips with them during Easter time and say, just come, just come. Because if it's true, you're going to want to know. It'll change everything for you. One of the reasons I think we struggle to encounter a, a fresh perspective on the Easter story, on the death and resurrection of Jesus is in part because we kind of look at it as one of uh, many stories of faith. And maybe if you grew up in the church, you were told this story before, and so you're somewhat familiar with it. And so we just kind of have this sense of like, oh yeah, it's right, I know what this is, and, and that's this story, and at this time we celebrate, and at Christmas we celebrate a different story, and whatever. And we somehow see this uh, as a disconnected, like some kind of propositional truth. Jesus died and he rose again. Okay. We miss the fact, actually, that it's a part, it's not just a random story, but it is a part of a long story that has played out since the beginning of time, which you and I are now a part of, that it's actually a part of our story. And we've talked about this all the time, about one of the reasons we study scripture is because the more we understand the grand kind of narrative or story of the world, the more we understand ourselves, which is kind of what we're all trying to do. That passage that Malcolm read for us is from Genesis chapter 3, and it's interesting because, and you've heard me say this before, the, the book of Genesis, the word just means beginnings. The first three chapters of the Bible actually explain so much of the rest of all of your story and my story. 
in, a, in, a, in an ancient, in ancient plays, the opening act was so essential because it, it, it set the stage. It explained everything that was about to happen. If you miss that, you miss the whole story. And it's interesting, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are not just three chapters of the whole rest of the book. They actually explain all of how human life came to be, not in, term, not in a scientific way, but in a, in a way that who is God, who are we, and how do we relate? And this passage describes maybe what is familiar to, to many of you, where God had created this this beautiful world out of a sense of, of the love and beauty that was overflowing in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a sense, spilled out in creation. And so God speaks in this, all of the beautiful things that we love in the world that have been made were made by the word of God. And then into that world, God breathes life and, and actually makes out of the dust forms humanity, people who were going to, in a sense, display his image and somehow reflect this idea of the fact that God is not just this impersonal life force, but is actually um, has personhood and is in relationship, just as Father, Son, Spirit are all in relationship, that we were created as human beings to be in relationship to one another. That in a sense, human beings were almost the ultimate expression of the artist, the creator, God. And he placed them in this paradise and they were meant to live and love and enjoy relationship with each other and enjoy work and enjoy relationship with creation and all of the benefits that come from the beautiful world that God had made. And if you know the story, God said, look, everything is in play for you, just not this one thing. And of course, as human beings, we're like standing next to the one thing, you know? And that's what happened. And they ate of the fruit of the tree that God said not to. And, and, and it describes this whole thing where they sinned, they did what they wanted to do, got convinced by the serpent that they shouldn't really trust God, but they should trust themselves. Eve takes matters into her own hands, pulls Adam in, and suddenly there's sin. Now, you may know the story, but what's so interesting is what happens as soon as they kind of try to do life their own way. It says they freaked out, hid, sewed fig leaves together, suddenly realized they were naked and are hiding in the bushes. And God comes and finds them, right? And it's like God saying, where are you? As if he didn't know, but it was a probing question, right? In other words, why are you hiding? They come out and he said, Adam says, oh, well, I, I was naked and I covered up. How, do, how did you know you're naked? Did you eat of the fruit of the tree that I told you not to, right? So they're hiding, they're covering up. And then as soon as they're busted, they blame. Adam's like, well, the, Adam, this is very clever. He blames his wife and God at the same time. The woman you gave me. Boom. Eve, ah, uh, the serpent, right? They're hiding and then they're blaming. And Dan, Dan Allender, a, a writer and a psychologist describes it this way, that, that the fig leaves in a sense are describe what happens in all of humanity when we sin is the, is the shame and the blame game. It is the instinct of human behavior when we sin, when we fall in a sense to cover up, to, to hide, but then when we're exposed to blame. And so all of life is this and this, this and this right? If you remember nothing else in the sermon that you remember, okay? Ah! Ah! Right? Doesn't that just describe our lives as human beings? I mean, whether or not you're, you, you think that the Bible is true, whatever, the reason I believe it's true is it explains so much of me and life. Yes, all of life. This, this. And now it's very hard to do this and this at the same time, but we're amazing creatures and we're able to do it. And so we're constantly hiding and blaming, our lives are marked by, in a sense, a, a sense of shame where we just struggle to be okay with who we are. 
and also hiddenness that comes from having things in our lives we don't want anybody to know. And then when we are threatened or poked or exposed or when our shame is exposed, we come out swinging. You bought that him. They, if they hadn't, we hadn't, she did that. And so this and this is our lives as human beings. And this is exactly what Genesis says happens as soon as sin comes into us. Right? This, this describes a lot of the way that we live. There is a, a sense of shame that seems to mark our lives as human beings. And, and maybe we're more aware of this than ever in this day and age because we live in the sort of the day of the self-help, you can do it, anything you think of, positivity, don't worry, talk yourself out. Why? Because we are all trying to address the fact that psychologically we don't even love ourselves. That there's something inside of us that makes us want to be ashamed of who we are, that, that in a sense, I'm not my perfect self, and so I have to image manage. Right? Think about how much of our time goes into managing our image, what other people think about us. Some of us are really good at this, right? Of going a, a certain thing, like even when you say, well, I don't normally watch TV, but... In other words, I don't sit around wasting hours and hours and hours, but when I was, this is what I did, right? An image, little image manage statement. I mean, social media in itself entirely is built on image management. Like, we don't post all the stuff about our lives that's horrible and that we wouldn't want anyone ever to know, only the things that we would want people to know. Why? We are projecting an image. It's human nature. We all do it. Whether you're on social media or not, we all want people to perceive us a certain way because there are things about ourselves that we like, that we want to believe are our true selves, and there's other things about us that we don't like. And so we are constantly managing our image. How are we being perceived? And maybe you know, our, our, we want our family to perceive us a certain way. We want our neighbors to perceive us a certain way. The people we work for, the people we work with, they need to perceive us a certain way. Strong, confident, capable, successful, whatever. How, how else, you know, we want to make, if we have kids, we want to make sure they perceive us as being you know, in control and together and authoritative and kind and loving all at once. So there's all of that stuff that goes into making sure that what isn't seen is the stuff about ourselves that we're not proud of. And then, have you ever done something that you've tried to hide? You ever had stuff that you just pray nobody finds out? Or that certain people in your life never find out because those people are the ones who have the, the image you're most careful to want to protect? Like you would never want them to know? Isn't it a horrible feeling? Isn't it, doesn't it suck all of the life out of you when you live in fear of, of there's stuff that you've done that you're just hiding. You're trying to live as many days after that just to get that as far in your past as you can. That you hope no one ever finds out about or you just hope you never see creeping up again. You stuff it down. That there is this instinct in us not only to manage an image of what other people think about us, but just to cover up the things that we have done. So there's blemishes, there's imperfections, but there's also sin. There's weaknesses, there's failures, there's moments, seasons of weakness, stuff we've done that we're just like, man, how did I do that? I just don't want anyone to know. And so our lives are marked by a lot of the energy that goes into managing what other people think about us and making sure they don't find out about things. And, and the scriptures say that's exactly what happened when sin came into the world. The instinct was this, to hide, to cover up. 
But then the other side of it is blame, which is really just the more aggressive form of cover-up, right? It, it wasn't like Adam was saying he didn't do it. He just said, look at that. Look, God, look at her. The woman you gave me. He doesn't own anything. He's just like, okay, I've found out. So I, the other way I can cover up is more aggressive is to say, well, they did it. If I, I wouldn't have done that if they hadn't have said that. Well, I had to do that because of this. Well, I, I did that, but did you see, have you seen that? It's blame. Once we are exposed, then we go into blame mode. Shame and then blame. And blame is just, like I said, it's a more aggressive form of cover. It's good. Look, don't look at me. Look at that person. So much of our lives are, are marked by this. Image management. Actually, right? They even, they even tell you, when you're, if you're a public speaker, that what? You should imagine your audience in their underwear, right? Imagine them exposed so that you feel strong. Now, they don't give that advice to preachers, which is a good thing. That would not be helpful for preachers or public speakers to do that. But that's what they say, right? It's this kind of weakness thing. If you can somehow picture another person weaker or more vulnerable than you, then you will feel more capable and strong. And then, of course, the blaming just happens because we all are on the bell curve of humanity. Well, I'm not a serial killer. I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm somewhere. As long as I have people around who I can point to who are worse off than me, then at least I know I'm not the bottom of that curve. So there's passive ways we do it, and then sometimes even just the way that this comes out. Right? And, and you, know, you can see this in your, in your workplace, right? That you're maybe managing your image all the time. Or, or how often do we get together as people in our workplace and we commiserate about our stupid boss or our company that's lost its vision? And Man, I can't believe people make decisions like this, right? We're hiding, we're blaming. You know, we're making sure we don't look the weakest so that when cuts come, we're not at the bottom. And, and then we also just sit around and talk about how bad we think our employers are. We hide and we blame. Those of you that are married, we do this all the time, right? We're... we're Maybe it made aware by the fact that all, we thought we were good and all of a sudden we got married and someone's close to us saying, hey, why do you do this? Why do you do that? How come that? Have you noticed that? Hey, it's like, hey, 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 hey. The closeness sometimes exposes and so then, so then we blame. And it's easiest to blame the people that are closest to you, right? Because you can see all of their faults. And their shortcomings affect you directly. So there's lots of fodder for blame. And I was thinking about this this week. Man, how often conflict in marriage it's just, it's just driven on by shame and blame. Trying to defend myself, because I, if I have to admit that I was wrong in that argument that I'm going, man, like I'm the one that's causing the problem here. I don't want to, so I might cover that up. And if it gets really aggressive, well, then I'll just blame Jen. Say, well, you did this. Well, you did that. It looks very crude and unsophisticated in the lives of your kids, but it's very sophisticated and nuanced as adults. And yet it's the same thing. See it in our relationship. We see this in families, right? How many of us have families where there's things that are kept from each other? So like the one sister will call the one mother or whatever, and it's like, oh, but like not everybody knows, right? So there's secrets and there's stuff that's being held, or there's often blaming, maybe passively, maybe overtly, aggressively. Sometimes even there's families that are family secrets where stuff that's happened in your family and your, your parents or people have said, don't tell any, no one else must know. Or you just, they didn't say that, but you just knew this should never leave our family. Family secrets. Why? Because we're trying to cover up. We're trying to create an image. Maybe an image within the extended family. Maybe an image within the neighborhood. Maybe an image within the church. But then also all kinds of blame and conflict, right? How much of conflict and strife in families comes from this? You, if you hadn't, years later, still blaming. 
I do it with my kids. I can get annoyed, go on an extra long lecture, whatever. This is the problem with people with who talk. Like, our kids get really tired. Jen's like, honey, just shorter, shorter. <laughs> but I can easily justify getting annoyed with them because of what they did. Well, they shouldn't do that. Well, maybe. But that doesn't justify my behavior. But why I can be grumpy or be annoyed or be harsh to them because of what they did. What's well, blame? And certainly in that dynamic, I can't admit that I was the one wrong because I'm the parent, I'm the adult. I'm supposed to be the one who's better or right. Think about this. How many of our relationships are marked by this and this and this and this, and it's tiring. Virtually every sphere of life. And the scriptures say, well, that's, that's what happens when we sin. And we're constantly sinning. And also we just constantly have this sense of psychological alienation from ourselves where we're not quite comfortable with who we are. And so, of course, this would mark our lives. Again, I'm telling you, this, this to me is the greatest apologetic or the reason that the Bible is true because it just explains life. It's like, yeah, this is what we do. Fig leaves. You know, you can imagine Adam and Eve like in the bushes. Quick, quick, quick. You know, how many of you, how many of you guys sew? Hey, men sew? You don't have to be ashamed. How many, how many women sew? Okay, a few more, right? I wonder if like guys, were, like Adam was like the first, like he was more of the sewer and then he did such a bad job. Just, just give me that. And from then on, you know, we just didn't do it anymore. Can you imagine, like, behind the bushes, like, what should we do? Fig leaves, yes, grabbing them together, sewing them together. This pathetic little covering, right, for everything that was going wrong in their mind, as if fig leaves could cover it, and yet that's the blame, the shame and blame game, right? It is our pathetic, pathetic attempt to deal with ourselves and our fallenness and then somehow cast aspersions or shine the light on somebody else and, and get it away, get the spotlight away from us. And it's pathetic because it doesn't work, right? Like all the stuff that you and I do to manage our image, does it actually change us? Can you get rid of your blemishes? You know, because we've all been made fallen, right, in some way. Can, can you really get rid of all your imperfections? Just, when you hide things from people, do they get better? Family secrets that stay in the family, does the family heal? And the blame that happens in our relationships, does that help intimacy in any way? Does the anger blame that we place on our employers, does that make us happier to come to work? No, it makes us more disgruntled. Does that improve the morale of our little team? No, it makes us more ineffective. Does the blame that we pass back and forth between spouses or family members, does that heal relationships? No, it, it creates bitterness. It creates a, and you ever notice you got into, you ever gotten into a habit or a, 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 maybe a season of your, of, in your family or in your work or in your marriage where that just has become the way of communicating? It doesn't work, right? And yet is that is our instinct to cover up. And now look at what God does. This is so amazing. You know, the way God treats human beings should forever cure us of this kind of lie that we have believed that he's not good. So God comes looking for them, right? Which is the reason we all avoid God, because we do not want to be found, right? It, every one of us has this instinct to hide from God, and God is looking for them. So he says, where are you, Adam? As if he doesn't know, but he's looking. And he's looking, but why is he looking? Is he looking to, to come and say, you, you good for nothing, you miscreants, you ingrates, how could you ruin this thing? I just gave you one, I just 
one instruction you had, and oh, you couldn't follow. You had to stand next to the tree. Is that what God says? Look what he says. Genesis 3. So he's looking for Adam. Verse 10, Adam says, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God says this, who told you you were naked? He doesn't verbally berate him, but he says this, and I kind of picture it this way. You know, if you, if you have kids and, and you think they're like, the, they're, you just think they're the most beautiful things in the world. You can look at their faces forever and kiss their faces. And like, from the time they're so little, you just think, it doesn't matter how they look, you think they're gorgeous. And the one day they come home from school, the first day that somebody burst their bubble and maybe said, you look weird. And maybe, and maybe, and maybe they're crying, right? What would it bring up in you? Hey, who told you you weren't beautiful? Who told you you should be ashamed of yourself, right? It's a jealous, it's a jealous anger for their innocence. And this is exactly what God says to them. Who told you you should be ashamed of your nakedness? I made you good. Why are you covering up? Is it to the love of God that says, I didn't want this for you. I didn't want you to be alienated from yourself, ashamed of yourself, having an instinct to cover up. Who told you you were naked? It's the love of God that seeks us out, friends, not to destroy us or zap us because we have disobeyed, but to say, I want something more for you than this. This is not what I made you for. And yet this is the reason we run from God, right? And we've all done it. In big and small ways, we, we are afraid of his piercing gaze because we think, oh no, I'm going to be found out. Yes, I'm going to be exposed. Yes, these pathetic fig leaves that I used to cover up myself are going to be shown to be quite pathetic. And God comes to them and says, this is not what I had for you. This is not what I wanted for you. I did not make you to be ashamed of yourself and to be hiding in the bushes when I had given you a life to live. Seeks us out. But then look what he does next, right? It says, obviously, he says to them, look, like, this is how life is going to be now for you. It's going to be marked by this because you have a seed and knowledge in your heart that wants to distrust that whenever I say something, you're like, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm going to wait on that. And that's going to wreck your life. And it has wrecked our lives, right? The seed of independence in us that says, well, I know God said this, but I kind of think this. I think I kind of know what is best for myself. And as they're leaving the garden, it says that God did something for them. It said he, he made coverings for them out of animal skins. God says here, just, just give me that kind of pathetic way of this and this. And I'm going to cover you. And this time the covering costs something, right? It's the first time blood was shed in the Bible. Animals were killed. Blood was shed so that these guys could have a covering that was better than the one that they had. Because it was pathetic what they had put together for themselves, and so God covered them up. You get that? They, their instinct was to hide from him, to live in shame, and to try to cover it up themselves. And he says, just come out, and let's talk about what happened, and let me cover you, because my covering's better. So let's, let's not hide. Let's talk about this. But think about this, as they walk out of paradise, you know, and they're covered in clothes that are a little bit better than Adam could have sewn. Was that really going to cover them? No, it covered their bodies. Would it, would it fix their mind? Would it fix the shame 
No, because clearly, right, you can't cover that up. And so years later, God would come looking for his people again. This time in a way that was so subversive that most people didn't even know he had come. And this time he would come and blood would be shed again to cover their sins, but this time not the blood of animals, but his own life, the blood of his son on the cross. And and that's what Jesus did for us on the cross was to shed his blood to give us a covering that we could have never made for ourselves. And that, that's how the covering of Jesus works on the cross. It's not a covering that lets us alone. It is out in the open. Have you ever seen The Passion of the Christ? And years ago when it came out, right, people were so offended by it because it was so bloody. It was so out there. It was so out in the open. And in a sense, Jesus stripped naked and exposed, and his death, really, that has been known around the world to the point now that many, many people, many of us wear a cross around our neck. It is the symbol, it is the reminder of how public the shame was that Christ paid for us. All of the shame that you and I try to hide and cover up and things, Jesus comes out in the open in, in, in a sense, literally stripped naked and yet completely exposed and shamed so that you and I could be covered. It's like on the cross, Jesus is saying to the Father, you know, that the, one of the songs we sing, right? The, the, the God was pleased to look on him, that is Jesus, and pardon me. Instead of us having to blame other people and try to drag and throw under, other people under the bus to somehow make ourselves feel a little bit better or justify ourselves a little bit more, Jesus says, point at me, I'll take it. That's why I came, to be the sacrifice for you, to stand in your place. I am the better covering. It is someone who needed, had nothing to be ashamed of and nothing to cover it up, who is willing to be shamed and exposed to take on, it says, scripture, the scripture says, oh, God put, placed on him all of our sin, all of our shame, all of the things that you and I tried to hide, all of the things we have done, all of the things we will do, all of the things about us that we hope never, no one ever finds out, the things that we wish we could change if we could go back in time, that God has taken all those things and laid them on Jesus, and Jesus has willingly received them. And Corinthians says, God made him who had no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And the words that scripture uses to describe what we get are new clothes. It's in a sense, Jesus, in a sense, was stripped of all of his clothes, and he gives them to us. We say, well, I can't wear these. I've sinned. And he's like, I know, but these are mine. I'm giving them to you. And that actually we put on the stuff that truly covers our sin. That's how it works. That instead of living life constantly aware of how we fall short, constantly aware of what we haven't done, and then trying to blame other people, all of which just makes us kind of hate ourselves and hate other people and tears us apart on the inside and on the outside. You know, I believe so, so much of the, the epic levels of mental illnesses that we are dealing with and mental health struggles is the mind itself coming apart saying, I cannot reconcile who I am on the inside. 
There is something about me that is coming apart. And the scripture says, yes, it is sin tearing us apart from the inside and tearing us apart from each other on the outside. This is the, con- the, the marks of shame and blame. And no amount of self-talk and just love yourself and think about the bright side and every cloud has a silver lining kind of talk will actually change it. It needs to be someone who says, yes, on the cross I see that I have in fact sinned. I cannot pretend I haven't. I cannot just say, well, it doesn't matter what I've done. I'm just going to think positively about myself. No, at some point I have to come out from behind the bushes and say, you're right, this is who I am. And I have to put my fingers down and stop blaming other people for the way they act. I have to own who I am. And yet the only way that that's going to happen without driving me further into despair is if I can look on Jesus and say, okay, I did this, but you're paying for it. I did this, but that's why you came. I did this, but in you I have forgiveness. I have life. I did this. I am stained, but in you I am washed clean. We don't get cleaned by, by pretending we have no stains or by hiding it, or by saying, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to hide behind these bushes, I'm going to sew some stuff together, and I'll, I can get myself together. I can do this. I can fix myself. And then we come out from behind the bushes with our pathetic solutions to our sin. And God says, no, on the cross, Jesus says, you don't need to hide anymore, because I have covered what you have done. And you know what happens Right? When we come to Jesus, when we, in a sense, come out from behind the bushes and we admit, that's what confession and repentance is. It's just saying, this is who I am, but it's not who I want to be. This is how I've been living. Repentance just means we turn around. This is the road I've been heading down, and I don't want to head there anymore, and I'm turning around. That's what that means. When we admit, when we come out from behind and say, okay, this is who I am. I'm going to stop pretending to cover myself with these pathetic ways of image management and hiding and then blaming other people. When we come to Jesus and say, okay, what you have done is actually for me. The reason there's all that blood on the cross is because I, I needed that salvation and cleansing. And in you, you know, instead of like Lady Macbeth, you know, driving herself crazy, trying to get the spots off her hands, we say, okay, you wash me clean. You forgive me. When that happens, we stop blaming. You know why? Because we don't need anyone else to take the fall for what we have done, because he has done it already. Get that? Like, if this is true, I heard a whispered amen. Come on, people. This, right? If this is true, then I don't need to hide anymore. If this is true, then I don't need to be ashamed of who I am. I can be honest with my failings and my shortcomings, and I can say, yes, I wish I wasn't, but I am who I am, and I'm asking Jesus to make me more than who I am. I'm I'm not who I once was, but I'm not yet where I want to be. If this is true, I can be open with who I am. I can come out from behind the bushes and stop trying to image manage, and I can be honest about who I want to be. And if that's true, then, then my fingers come down and I stop pointing it. And you know what happens? I don't just stop blaming people. I start to become a covering for them. Right? The psalmist says, blessed is the one whose sin is covered, whose sins the Lord does not count against them. Well, if, if my wife's sins have been covered by Jesus, who am I to try to expose them? Right? If someone close to me has repented of Jesus, if, if they are the ones who have received the covering of Jesus, why am I going to try to rip that covering off and say, well, you're this and you're that and you shouldn't have done that? No, I'm the one that covers them too. 
I can't forgive them by myself, but when I know that Jesus has forgiven them, then I say, yeah, I forgive them too. In a sense, we model for each other what it means to have our sins covered. Because sometimes this concept of Jesus forgiving us is actually hard to grasp until someone with skin on says, you know what, you've wounded me, but I love you anyway. You know what, I see this about you, but I'd rather cover it up than expose it. Not as in I'm hiding or I'm going to help you cover a lie or whatever, but I'm not going to be the one to make you feel ashamed of who you are. I'm not going to be the one to make you feel guilty about what you've done. I'm going to repent. I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to cover you because that's what Jesus has done for me. See, when we receive that covering, we begin to be able to give it to one another. There's no more reason to blame because I don't need someone to take the fall for me because Christ has done it already. And so this matter of covering is about, it's a saying it's a matter of take and give. It's a matter of take and give. You got to take the better covering that Jesus gives every time, over and over. Right? This is about a way of life, people. This is not a one time I prayed and Jesus forgave my sins. Now, I don't know about you, but daily, on a daily basis, as I'm reminded about my failings, as other people remind me about my failings, right? The things that I want to hide and cover up and the image that I want to manage, daily I have to say, no, 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 Jesus has a better covering. Rather than me defending myself and saying, I'm not that bad or I did that because of this. No, I'm going to take the better covering that Jesus gives. Is that who I, that's who I am, but that's new, not who I'm becoming. And I'm going to take what Jesus gives me and I don't need to cover up anymore. It's a daily basis. I'm going to take the better covering. And then the more I do that, the more I am a covering for other people. I'm not going to be the one to make them feel ashamed and guilty because Christ has covered me, so I'm going to cover you. I'm going to show you what it looks like to have your sins covered and not counted against you. Isn't that beautiful? That's what will begin to change our relationships where we come out from behind these hiding ways, you know, and we say, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. In a few moments, Tony's going to lead us in just a prayer of response. And I recognize that for some of you, you've never actually come out from behind the bushes and said to Jesus, okay, this is who I am. I repent. I confess. I want your better covering. I recognize the blood you shed was the way that the Father was actually permanently covering my sin, not just with this temporary stuff. That I'm going to stop trying to hide and blame and pretend I'm fine, and I'm just going to say, okay, oh Lord, I need you. Without you, I can't get the spots off my hands, but in you, I'm washed white as snow. Maybe you've never said that before. When Tony leads us in this prayer and you pray it, maybe you pray it for the first time, you got to come tell one of us after and said, I prayed that for the first time today. And then for the rest of us, it's like, I don't know about you, but this is just a prayer I need to pray over and over and over again, because my instinct is to go hide. My instinct is to manage my image. My instinct is to defend. My instinct is to blame. Now, what would happen in your life and my life if we began to do this more and more, if we began to receive the better covering? Our lives would be marked by less anxiety, less fear, less distance from other people, lest they find out who we really are. We'd probably sleep better. We'd have more peace in our lives. And then what would, ha- what would happen with our relationships? What would happen in our workplaces? What would happen in our marriages? What would happen with our kids? 
always said this, you know, that sometimes we're praying for the circumstances in our lives to change. But if we change, our, our, our lives will change, even if our circumstances don't. If you and I change, if we become people who are less worried about hiding and covering up and blaming, our workplace will be different because we are different in it. Our marriage will be different because we are different in it. Our relationship with our children will be different because we are different in it. Our relationship in our families and our extended families will be different because we are different in it. Even if nothing else changes, if you and I begin to take that covering on, less anxiety, less fear, less distance, more peace, less conflict, less bitterness, less turmoil. If it's true, then that changes everything. Before I give you a benediction, just had a sense that there may be some of you that just uh, feel like you want some prayer after this message. I don't know when I was singing there. I just thought there's some of you that just stuff got stirred up that you feel like you want someone to pray for. Maybe if I can just ask a couple of the elders to be over here and one of them to join me over here after. And if you want to come forward for prayer, you can, uh, you can do that for whatever it is that God's doing in your heart. Also, just to let you know, in a couple weeks, we're actually going to start a series on forgiveness because I think there's actually a pathway that we need to learn as Christians to walk in this. What does that actually look like? So we're going to take six weeks actually to do that uh, a couple weeks after Easter. And so um, maybe you just feel like that's a good thing for you, or maybe there's just someone in your life that you think, hey, this will be helpful for them. I just want to bless you with the words of uh, that last song. It says, when before the throne I stand in him complete. It's a picture of perfection. And I know it's easy to look inside of our lives and say, yeah, but Vijay, you have no idea that ah, these stains, they're pretty deep. Yeah, but as Christians, we worship not just the Christ on the cross, but you know, it is an empty cross because he is living. He has been made perfect now and is a down payment or a clue to the fact that this is what is going to happen to you and me that we struggle and we labor and we fight and we fail and we are tempted to hide again. We say, no, I know one day I will stand before him complete. And until then, I'm just going to fight. So we just receive that just as a hope to say, it's not going to happen in this life, but that's where you're headed. (laughs) Amen? Amen? Amen.